Welcome to the Here's Church podcast. Our vision is to build Christ-centered communities of imperfect people for the city. Now, let's listen to Brother Scott as he shares the scripture message. Good morning and welcome to everyone here. And for those of you tuning online, I'm ex- really excited today to deliver to you the last message in our series of uh, Old Testament and New Testament handles for the elections. I hope and pray that as a church, this series has helped us navigate these politically sensitive times, potentially divisive, um, helping us to keep the gospel central. Especially in these recent elections results and the proclamation of the Philippines new president and VP and other leaders of this nation. Um, But before I get into the sermon, let's pray for the Holy Spirit to help me and us as a congregation to understand and illuminate this text for us this morning. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word today, we ask that your Holy Spirit would um, bring to mind and illuminate to us your truth of your word and how you want us to live out that word and your gospel, not only in our church and our families, but how it relates in the government and political sphere considering these uh, recent elections. Unite us all in one spirit under one Lord and mediator, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Disinformation, misinformed people, division, strife, unfruitful debates, speculations, people thriving on controversy, arguing, anger, pride, and tribalism. Does that sound familiar? You might be thinking I'm talking about politics and especially during this election season. When topics of politics come up, whether at the dinner table, with family or with friends. But I'm actually referring to the situation in the context of the church here in First Timothy. See, in the context, Timothy was sent by the Apostle Paul to the church in this region of Ephesus, and it was obsessed with this anti-gospel doctrine, myths and speculations, and it produced all these unfruitful debates and argumentation. And this resulted in some pretty bad stuff. So division, disorder, people being neglected in the church, Um, unfruitful controversies, and all because of pride, because they lost sight of the centrality and simplicity of the gospel. Paul wrote to Timothy to help him counter these false teachers and the doctrine by reminding them of the true gospel, that Christ came into the world to die for sinners, and that by believing this true gospel, people will persevere and hold on to their faith with good conscience and love and peace, and it'll bring about godliness and love for each other and restore order to God's church. So what can we learn in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to prevent this types of behavior in our church? Can we not relate in some ways to the situation here in 1 Timothy, especially with politics? Very divisive topic, as we all have experienced and know where even within Christian families and communities, relationships are anywhere from the range of 
uncomfortable silence to vocal disagreements to even separation. So we can learn three main things about the importance of prayer in its priorities. From this passage to help us as a church and community, not only as it pertains to politics, but when dealing with any divisive topics and discussions within our community long-term. Now, as a precursory note, if we're honest with ourselves, prayer is usually not the first thing we think of when it comes to solving aggressive, divisive issues, much less politics. We tend to be a more pragmatic, looking for practical solutions, and oftentimes the easiest thing we just avoid, right? Prayer usually comes last when you know we've exhausted all our options. It's kind of like a Hail Mary. But Paul challenges not with only the priority of prayer and putting it at the forefront, but also informs us about three things about the very character of prayer that we need to understand that we are praying in a way, so that we are praying in a way that's beneficial and according to God's wisdom. We learn three things that number one, prayer is inclusive. Number two, the purpose of prayer is proactively seeking shalom or peace in Christ alone. And number three, the posture of prayer is humility. So number one, prayer is inclusive. We can see that in verses one to four. So here we can see that prayer is inclusive in a number of ways. Um, I'll address two of them here. It says that it includes all types of prayers here in verse one, overlapping types of prayers. There's requests or supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings to all types of prayers. It's not just a general prayer that we pray for people. And number two, it includes all people or all kinds of people. The idea here is not to get up, caught, get caught up on the details of the different types of prayer, but that the different types of prayers are to be applied to all kinds of people. We don't, again, just generally pray for all people. We are to pray and making requests in their sessions on behalf of all people and even to find ways to be thankful for them. Now, why do you think this might be challenging? If you read chapters, the other chapters in 1 Timothy, Paul is challenging and addressing the church in Ephesus because they were dividing themselves based on social and economic status. And so more needy people in the church were getting neglected while the wealthy, rich, and those who, who thought were more educated theologically were getting prominence. These people were probably only attending to their own kind and people like them. So Paul challenges them to pray for all people. In our own context and time, we might not be as divided necessarily in our church, but the challenge is similar. We often make prayer requests to God on behalf of the needs of people that we are familiar with, that we like, and people we are thankful for. Scripture here is really just challenging us to pray for people that we, does not fit into our political party list, religious denomination, social, racial class, comfort zone, or expectations, right? 
Think about prayer across the day. Does it regularly include only those people in our circle of friends and family, work, or even our church? Or does it kind of expand to people outside our comfort zones? And for those who do not necessarily agree with us, nor associate with us. Aside from praying for people we like and their needs, we want to live out the gospel, praying for people who may not be like us. And the types of people that usually are different than us are those people who are in high political authority, like kings and those who are in high positions. So that's why Paul, number two, says, pray for those in political authority. So why do you think Paul mentions, pray for kings and all those who are in high positions? I think there are a couple ways why Paul mentions this. In Paul and Timothy's day, in ancient times, um, people viewed kings and monarchs as deities. They actually represented God's will on earth, and so people often prayed to Caesars for things. So they expected blessing in their life. They wanted to pray to them, and so they offered alms and prayers to people in authority. Another group of people that they viewed kings and monarchs is, you know, Christians who didn't pray. They're indifferent to kings because Jesus was their king in allegiance. Therefore, they thought they should pray only to Jesus because Jesus was a true king. They either didn't like the kings or they're indifferent to them. So how does this relate to us today? Some of us in a similar way or fashion may not be praying at all for our political leaders. They think it's because we don't like the people in office. We didn't necessarily vote for them. Or we are completely indifferent. We think, nothing will change. And so we don't have any motivation to pray for our leaders. For those of us um, that are very concerned about politics, there is another extreme that we can go into in applying this today that Paul says to pray for kings and not to kings. People in many countries, including the Philippines, have put too much hope in our political leaders. And in a sense, people end up praying to them rather than for them. We can functionally deify our political leaders by looking to them to solve what we think our biggest problems are to, and save us. Where in actuality, that ultimate hope belongs to Christ alone. And so rather than praying to our leaders, we should be praying for them. And praying for them assumes that God's rule and authority is over them. It is God who ultimately is in control and therefore we only pray to God and pray for our leaders. So another challenge we might try to do is influence kings and, and our public leaders today. How do we do that? Kings are often very distant, right? Distant in terms of hard to reach, inaccessible, remote. 
making it practically difficult to appeal and make requests to them. How great it would be if us as common people can just walk into the palace and ask for things, right? Um, but politicians are surrounded by people, bodyguards, oppressed, press, armored cars. They're in high secure buildings and most likely too busy. And sure, you might think we can have some influence in a democracy by voting or even writing um, our political leaders. But if we're honest, many of us don't think our votes even count or even we don't even trust the voting systems. Now, the amazing thing that Paul is saying is that we can have a godly influence on them by lifting them up in the Lord in prayer. Although we cannot reach them, God can. And so we pray, as we see in verse three, our prayers go farther than anything else we can do to those who are inaccessible to us because it gives us access to the very will and power of God. Not only for us to live peaceably and godly lives, but for his very salvation to be accomplished. And beloved, what a great encouragement this is is that when we pray for others, that we know our prayers are backed by the very gracious heart and will of God. And it's his inclusive desire for all kinds of people, regardless of their social status, class, whether you're a king or a commoner, president or public, part of the public, regardless of the location, that is the far-reaching effect of prayer. And therefore, we can pray for people in authority and for all people who are different and even far geographically from us. For example, we can and should pray for, for people in other parts of the world, not just for our, our countrymen, although it's very important. We can pray for the Ukraine, even Russia, the authorities and the people there. You hear news of shootings in Texas, right? How can we make an impact there? The answer is prayer. Because God is behind our prayer and his very will is done through prayer. So we pray for God's will and peace, even salvation. And it brings us to the second point of prayer in this text. The purpose of prayer is proactively seeking peace or shalom through Christ. In this text, we see that prayer is just not a passive religious activity. I'll get to this in more detail, but prayers influenced by the gospel results in action that lives out the prayer. And this means as Christians, we should be really living out our prayers. Now in a religious culture, we may often think of prayer merely as a passive an outward religious act. You see pictures of Jesus praying in Gethsemane, sweating and praying all night. You see pictures of people doing that as well. And we think that is what prayer should, should look like. And Paul here is challenging us and encouraging us to do so is not to think of prayer merely as a passive religious act that ends with an amen but to look at more into its content and how it influences how we act and live it out. It challenges us to be proactive and live out the prayer, to live peaceful and quiet life, dignified as it says in verse two. 
There we'll see how these prayers worked itself out for Paul in verse 7, and by implication, ourselves. Now here in verse 5, it says, you know, we see that Christ alone is the mediator between God and men. Although prayer is inclusive and the gospel message is for all, Christ as the mediator is exclusive. As a mediator, Christ reconciled us to God, and because of that, we have peace with God. And also the peace of God. The idea of peace in the Bible is a very sophisticated and beautiful thing. It's just not just the absence of trouble or feeling relaxed. Another word for peace in the Bible is shalom. And I believe Paul is speaking to this idea of shalom here in verse 5 and also previously in verse 2. So what is shalom? One Christian author describes shalom as a harmonious peace, and that means complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, whether it's physical, emotional, social, or spiritual, because all our relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. That's a full definition of biblical peace or shalom. So Christ was the only mediator who through the incarnation, perfect life and his atoning death could bring about the shalom we all need, a reconciled, full, complete, perfect, and therefore joyful relationship with God. Now Paul was so impacted by the shalom brought about through Christ's mediation that he was proactively working itself out in his prayers. And not only in his prayers, but into his very life and relationship. He emulated Christ's example of being a mediator and agent of peace or shalom. So where do we see this in the text? So verse seven, it says, for this, I was appointed a preacher and gospel. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul lived out his prayer to live out the gospel and bring shalom. His prayer was proactive and resulted in action. His prayer didn't end with amen. For only to him passively live out his life, living it up to God. To take care of the rest. But it resulted in the action of proclaiming the truth of the gospel to Gentiles. Now let's think about that. Why did Paul mention Gentiles here? Because based on traditional Jewish culture of his day, Paul as a Jew wasn't supposed to associate with non-Jews or Gentiles, much less even pray for them. But Paul was so impacted by the mercy of the gospel and its offer to all people that he not only prayed for them, but lived it out and identified himself as a teacher and minister to people completely outside of his comfort zone. And instead of living out the cultural enmity between the Jews and Gentiles, as it was expected, he sought to live out this peace of God, this shalom, with the Gentiles. And if you read Paul's life, especially in the book of Acts, you can see that he was living out his prayer of gospel ministry to all people, both Jews and non-Jews, to all kinds of people, even to governors and those with political authority in Rome. So that's Paul, but how does that encourage us today? Well, in the Philippines, 
majority of us know in our heads that the facts of the gospel, that Jesus died and rose again. We factually know that. There are knowledge of the facts of the gospel not really intersecting with us seeking and living out the shalom for our city, for whatever spheres of influence that we have. And why is that? Well, we need to deepen our prayers and value Christ being our mediator, bringing us reconciliation and peace with God. And then and only then can we start to be agents of shalom and seek the shalom of the city where we live. Now, Elder Noel's last sermon, he mentioned his last sermon, Jeremiah 29.7, which kind of sums it up, um, what we are to do as Christians. Jeremiah 29.7, it says, work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. That word is shalom. Pray to the Lord for it. You're supposed to pray for it and you're supposed to seek it. So our prayers are not just passive, but they work itself out to seeking the peace and prosperity of the city for Christ. So whether you're a professional, single, or mother, or husband, or even still a youth, we should not only be able to pray, but think how can we proactively work this prayer out to contribute to shalom. When we pray and seek the peace of a particular person or place, we also need to be sensitive of how to contribute to it. As Christians, we all want a peaceful and godly city, but prayer not only invites us to wish, not only wish that, but also gets us thinking as community and as individuals to how to be contributors to that peace. So how are you able to contribute to this peace in your sphere of influence? Not only individually, but how can we do this collectively as a community of believers? If our church as a community and family can contribute to the shalom and become agents of peace, then as a group, we can influence more impactfully each other, living out what the scripture means about bringing shalom here. And this will greatly encourage people what it practically means for living out what Jesus means to be a mediator. And we can be very inclusive in this because Christ was as he is the one mediator who died as a ransom for us all. So even if we really get good at this, of living out our prayers and examples of mediators of peace like Christ and Paul, we should be careful to maintain a humble heart while doing it and maintain a posture of humility. And that brings us to the third point. So in verses eight to 10, there is mention of the word pride explicitly, right? but we can definitely see it in the way people in this church were acting. Pride can manifest itself in many ways in different people and cultures. And here we see two ways in which it was shown. The outward behavior of selfish anger, anger and materialism or the flaunting of wealth. I also want to mention here that Paul is not just randomly listing another command here to be humble, right? To be prayerful and godly. It's a natural flow from the previous verses. He sees it, 
humility that is, is a necessary consequence of believing and valuing the gospel and the peace it brings. In a sense, Paul is giving us a litmus test, a practical proof to see if we as a church or any professing church for that matter, or as individual believers value the true gospel instead of a false one. If the one true gospel is valued and believed, it will always result in people in churches being loving to all, praying for all, godliness, good works, and humility. If a false doctrine or anti-gospel in whatever shape or form that may be enters the church, that results in division, competition, class separation, anger, quarreling, and neglect of needy people. That is why in a sense, bad doctrine in a large part is so bad. It's just not a right or wrong issue of abstract theology because it bears bad fruit, bad action. Whereas gospel doctrine preached and believed bears good fruit. So Paul goes back to the gospel and the previous virtues. And then based on that, he tells them, if you want to live consistently with the good news of the gospel, it must be in humility. That's why he says, so then, based on the previous verses. But in, con in contrast, we see that there are selfish angers and disputes. Now, not all anger or debating is necessarily wrong. But here we see some of the men of the church acting out their pride through angry quarreling, and they loved controversy especially. So elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we can find people's pride and love of unhealthy controversy, he says fruitless arguing and speculations. They were running rampant in the church. And this, again, was producing division, envy, and friction among the people of the church. They were doing a lot of theologizing, focusing on controversies, yet their life was not marked by a priority of prayer and humility, which comes as a fruit of knowing the gospel. To be consistent with understanding that gospel humbles us. And one necessarily responds in prayer, which is in itself an act of humility, submitting to God. The other type of pride that we see is materialism. People are flaunting their wealth. Some of the women were dressing so upscale that they were intimidating and excluding those in church who were not as well off. They wanted people to notice more of their wealth and style instead of what people of Christ should be and should be known for, for what they were saying that says profession of godliness. So we want people to know what you're saying and also what you're doing, the good works. So the materialism and flaunting of wealth detracted from the profession of godliness and even doing good works. It countered that. So today we don't need to be exact, uh, acting exactly like these people in these verses to demonstrate a prideful attitude rather than humility. It doesn't have to be angry arguments about theology. It of course can be about politics, right? It could be anything that you place as more important than the gospel at any point in time. So before we engage people we disagree with theologically, politically, or however, 
How much time do we spend in humble prayer praying for them as much as possible to be agents of Christ's peace rather than a desire to create division and discord just to prove that we are correct or that they're wrong? And in terms of showing off our possessions and status, you know, we don't have, it doesn't have to be necessarily like a fashion show in this church. Most of us are very casual here. But we still have ways to show off materialism and wealth. I mean, do I really need to list the ways, all the ways in social media that allows us to do this? There's things called virtual signaling. I learned a new term called humble bragging the other day, which um, it can be very subtle or obvious. You know, things like, I really don't like it when I lose weight and I have to buy new clothes. Or don't ever buy a Jaguar, the parts are too expensive, things like that. You know, those are very obvious ways, but, you know, we can still flaunt our wealth and our materialism in very subtle ways. It doesn't have to be an outright way to do it. And all that is to say that humility didn't come naturally to this church, so we can expect it not to come naturally to Heroes Church. A mere command of be humble and pray will not last very long at all. We cannot do it without a right understanding of the gospel. And what is that right understanding? So if we go back to uh, ch chapter one, verses 15 and 16, Paul saw himself as a great singer, sinner. In this translation, it says the worst of them. I like that translation. Or in other words, of who I am the foremost. Paul really believed this. He's the worst. But he was shown mercy. The more we see our wretched sinfulness and our tendency for pride, however it manifests itself, whether love for controversy, or flaunting ourselves, the more sweet and beautiful Jesus and his mercy will be to us. Only then can we live out the prayer and merely as Jesus did. And we see Jesus' mercy displayed and most beautifully, and of course, the gospel. We see that Christ prayed for all, even those he disagreed with. And for those that hated him. Even on the cross while he was dying, Jesus prayed for all of them. Father, forgive them. Everyone in his presence while he's hanging there. He said, for they do not know what they are doing. He was interceding for people that didn't deserve it. And he died as a ransom for all, all kinds of people that are undeserving, all of us. And in John 10, it describes Christ as a shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. So sheep highlighted here is not to put emphasis on how great sheep are. It's really to note that when the Bible calls us sheep, it's not really a compliment. Sheep are not so smart. They're defenseless animals that are basically better off dead without a shepherd. The fact that Jesus died on his sheep's behalf is more a testament 
to his amazing grace and mercy to us than anything about us as sheep. The more we realize that, the more we can be more inclusive, live out our prayers and be agents of peace and humility. So I want us to exhort you guys as a simple, very simple application. Let's ask ourselves, is number one prayer a priority for you today, especially in light of this political season? Is it a constant, you know, prayer, not just every three years when election comes about, not just every six years, but is it regular? And is it inclusive in living out prayers for the gospel? Do you pray for our president, BBM, and our vice president, Sarah? Are you challenged to find ways to be thankful for them? Or maybe it's easy for you. Either way, are you praying for them? All our senators, even in the local barangay, all are going up to the palace. And they're not only people in authority, people outside our sphere, other churches, it doesn't have to be CRCP or Breadcom, realizing there's, there's the spirit of God in all the churches in, in the Philippines. Are you inclusive in living out your prayers, knowing that it's God's desire and the very will, his gracious will, that all will come to the knowledge of the truth? Let's ask ourselves that today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to be our mediator. Without him, and left our own devices. Would we remain hostile to you, whether that be an indifference or anger, but you sent Jesus Christ to be in a, a sacrifice for us on our behalf. Let us continue to see that we are imperfect people needing your grace and mercy and help us to live out that grace and peace in our community, in our families. Help us to be agents of peace and pass it forward, not just to do it with um, pride or any bragging, but also with humility as is consistent with your gospel. Let us do that in our friends, our family, and extending and beyond um, our spheres of influence, Lord. Christ's name we pray. Amen.